I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to say this not so insulting. <laughs> really tired of walking in classrooms and saying the same thing. That's fine. Okay. My name is Casey Bratcher, and I'm an advocate for student thought. Can we do it again? What I'm trying to do is actually... <laughs> See, look at me. I'm going to already get in <clears throat> Can we just tell them what the name of the podcast is? Yeah, no. You're listening to Rebels and Risk Takers. And in this classroom of students, I was like, obviously this isn't working. There's this moment where you realize, I got to rebel. For me, it actually started with a real dislike of mathematics um, in elementary and middle school. Math for me was all about memorizing and procedures and formulas and practicing the same problem over and over and over and over and over again. And it was super boring. Um, I really did not care for it at all. But evidently, I wasn't terrible at it because I was selected to take Algebra 1 as an eighth grader um, in my school district. So my eighth grade Algebra 1 experience was really the turning point for me. Um, and I think there were a variety of reasons for that. First of all, at that time in Kentucky, which is where I'm from, our state required writing portfolios and math portfolios. I don't know if anybody else, else out there has ever had like a state requirement. I know many other states required writing portfolios, but math portfolios seem to be like a Kentucky only thing. But basically what that meant was that every year of middle and high school, we had to write various pieces of or work and compile them into this formal portfolio that we submitted to the state. Like it was part of our testing requirement. So for our writing portfolios, we had to compile like letters, articles, essays, poetry, editorials. There were lots of different things we would put in our writing portfolio and you had to do different kinds of pieces. And for our math portfolio, we had to write these extensive papers about how we solved complex problems. So for the first time ever, I was finally presented with complex problems to solve alongside my peers. Problems that had a lot of times various pathways and multiple solutions, problems we had to grapple with sometimes for, for days. And then we would spend additional days writing how we solved the problem. I remember drawing um, models in my uh, math portfolio pieces. It was the most fun I'd ever had in my life. I mean, I fell in love with math immediately when it became about figuring stuff out and solving problems. I also owe a lot of credit to that eighth grade algebra teacher who was brave enough to do things differently that year too. She had to choose the right complex problems to give us and then sort of get out of our way and not over micromanage or over show us how to do things and let us solve them. Her name is Miss Daniel and I'm really thankful. I still actually have her in my life. Anyway, I went on to have other really great math teachers in high school, many of which were traditional, um, but, and no one was really quite like Miss Daniel, but they all cared about me personally. They all challenged me, and I knew pretty early on after eighth grade that I wanted to teach math. It was really a no-brainer for me. What about you, Jill? What's your origin story? So it's funny, the beginning of mine starts like almost a straight arrow towards becoming a math teacher. And then I have all sorts of crazy loops in between of how I actually ended up uh, being a math teacher. But when I was in high school, I loved math. That was my favorite class. And I especially loved helping my peers. And like, I wanted to sit and talk with people about the math problems. <laughs> and so I always really enjoyed that. I had some fantastic math teachers in high school. And I also had a fantastic chemistry teacher who also taught math. 
And I was lucky enough that my senior year of high school, I got to be an assistant in a freshman math class. And I got to actually teach a couple lessons and create lessons and look at grading and look at all the sides of being a teacher while I was still in high school. So I really treasure that experience. And that mentor teacher was Mr. Indek. And I also still have a relationship with him and still talk to him and see him. Um, but then going into college, I was a math major and was going to go into education. And I was in a calculus class that um, I was surrounded by um, almost all men, um, almost all engineering. Um, There's one other girl in the class. And I was really intimidated. I was a freshman in college at a huge university, and I did terrible in this class. Someone who had always been so great at math, I was like near failing and lost and struggling. And the teacher was not super helpful. And I remember continuing to say in my head, this is crazy that I'm trying to become a teacher in this scenario. Like, how is this helping me to become a great math teacher? Um, I ended up withdrawing from the class. I've got a big old W on my transcript. And I've always been like a little ashamed of that because math was like my thing. Um, and I um, really sadly after that decided math maybe wasn't my thing. I started to doubt myself and I became an elementary major instead of elementary education and really loved my elementary ed mathematics classes. Um, had a great time in there helping other people. And I went on to student teach in an elementary classroom. And I did not love that. I give so much credit to all the elementary teachers out there. You're with those kids all day long doing every single different subject. And I felt like that wasn't for me. So after student teaching, I actually did a whole bunch of other things. I worked for several nonprofits and had several years of um, other work. And then later, um, found my way back into math education and taught high school mathematics. Um, but one of the big important things to add into this is also I am a camp person. I worked at an overnight camp for 10 summers as a counselor and as a leader and later as full-time staff. And one of the biggest things I did was programming and creating programs. And I really see how that has impacted later my lesson planning, and now my professional learning. It's crazy to me that you had one really bad math learning experience, and it negated all of the amazingly positive math experiences you had had in the however many years prior to that, and you were like, nope, must not be for me. Like, that's, that's so true. Oh, that's a lot of pressure on us as teachers, I guess. My first year of teaching was extremely memorable. I'm wondering if yours was too. I made so many mistakes the first few years, not just the first year, but I, I specifically remember a couple of biggies my very first year. First of all, I can't even believe anyone would have hired me. I was a 22-year-old straight out of college, and I mean, I was a baby. I was teaching algebra, algebra 2 in geometry, and of course I was the newbie. So I had a lot of repeaters, some of which were, some of my students were literally 19. One of them turned 20 during the school year and I was only 22 myself. So I was mortified of these students that were really my peers, if you will. 
Um, anyway, my principal that first year was also a former math teacher, and I really liked her a lot. Um, but I remember specifically one time I was getting formally observed in a geometry class, and I must have been teaching the students how to use some kind of formula. I had a very, very carefully planned out class, as I always did, because I'm a, a very organized person. So my desks were perfectly aligned in rows and columns. I'm sure that I had used the um, tiles to actually measure between the desks so they were all perfectly spaced apart before this. That's how obsessive I was about that stuff. I had a warm up on the board for when students arrived. I was going to introduce the formula to them and then show them six examples from the overhead projector, which was our amazing technology back in 2002. And then I was going to assign them probably like numbers one through 40 from the book or one through 27 or something like that. All the, only the odds. I don't know. I'm sure it was lovely. Everything went as planned for the most part. Students were more well-behaved than normal probably because the principal was in the room. It, for me, when the class period was over, I was like, well, that was a win. I did all right. The principal smiled at me when she walked out until I went to the principal's office for my reflection conversation. And she pointed out that I had made an error in the formula that I was presenting the kids. Like I had, the formula was just wrong, completely wrong. And I was mortified, completely mortified. So I had to go back and completely reteach it the next day. It was just mortifying. What were your first years like? Did you have any moments where you were just like, oh, that, that, that wasn't good? So I got back into teaching at um, a school for students with special needs. So they had um, learning, emotional, and behavioral challenges. And so I was working with small groups of teachers or small groups of students and I remember that the books that we had in the classroom, they were really old and like the traditional textbooks that I had seen in school. And I was like, oh, this is how you teach. Like you just go from page to page and chapter to chapter and you assign like, you know, do one to 20, even whatever it is like that. And like in this classroom of students with these special needs, I was like, obviously this isn't working. And so I really had to rethink how I was using that textbook and what else I needed to bring into the classroom because those dry, you know, naked math problems were not cutting it for my students. And I regret continuing to spend that year in those kind of textbooks. Yeah, I spent a lot of my early years in traditional textbooks, just kind of sort of teaching the way I was taught, which was very traditionally, you know, your kids in rows and columns. And I was a very personable teacher. I got to know my kids. I built relationships with them. I felt like I was a fun presenter when it came to showing them how to do things and I would give them extra chances. But I, I, deep down, I feel like I always knew something was missing and I wasn't getting everyone. And like you said, you know, like not, it just wasn't working for every student that was staring back at me. Yeah, I feel like I missed out on a lot of discourse that students could have been having. Like that's a thing that I feel really passionate about now that I didn't know to be passionate about then of like students talking to each other about the math, which is crazy because that was something that I loved so much as a student. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the first step in rebelling is really coming to this realization that you actually have something to rebel against. And I wish someone had told me sooner that I didn't have to teach the way that I was taught that there was a better way and that I was allowed to let students critically think and communicate and collaborate and to even be creative in math class. 
that I didn't have to do it the traditional way because there was a better way. Rebelling requires risk-taking and mistake-making. So I entered teaching thinking that I knew it all to start. I mean, I had a math degree. I knew how my teachers had taught me. Um, and I made myself this combination of the variety of teachers that I'd had in high school that I really liked, I think. I did maybe two or three activities during the year, like Mrs. Daniels activities or complex problems. But for the most part, I think I was pretty traditional, not pretty, I was extremely traditional up front. You could, you could almost predict what was gonna happen in my classroom early on. Warm up, I'll show you if you, you copy me 25 times and then I'll test you in a couple of weeks and we'll see if you remember it, right? Um, and there was a point, I think my second or third year of teaching where I started to feel, I said this earlier, I started to feel this pull that like, there was more to this teaching thing. I needed to be doing something different. It, I knew that if I could just get kids to figure something out for themselves without me having to tell them, they would probably remember it better than if I was just telling them. Or if I got kids to struggle with something for a little while and, and make connections between this and that on their own or from each other, that maybe that would stick better than me just saying, do it like I'm doing. But at the time, I didn't really even know how to change or how to do that. I just sort of knew maybe there there was something more. So I had I had this desire to rebel against, if you will, like this traditional classroom and my perfectly aligned rows and columns. I just didn't know how to do it at that point. So eventually I went to professional learning activity. Um, it was actually a full week, almost like math camp, where I met Carnegie Learning um, and my rebellious spirit really came to life that week because during that week of learning, I was actually a student in a class where the facilitators were facilitating the way that I deep down knew I should be. They were, they were like Miss Daniel. They were, they were giving us these complex problems and we were talking together and they weren't showing, over showing us to start. And we were really critically thinking and communicating and collaborating and presenting our work. And I started to really make the connection that I could make my classroom look, look that way too. So that's when things really changed for me. And there were a lot of risks involved over the next several years because there were a lot, there was a lot of change that I had to make happen. So I, and I made a ton of mistakes and learned from them all, but I got better every day. And I know my students were better because of those risks that I took. And, and by risks, I just mean I had to do things different from the status quo. Like I had to decide I was gonna move my desks out of rows and columns, or I was going to, you know, sometimes just move my desk completely out of the room. We're all gonna sit in the floor. Um, I had to, to shake things up and do things differently, even from my next door neighbor teacher and be okay with the fact that I was doing something different and that it was going to be rough and tough at first and I was going to make mistakes, but that it was ultimately what was better. And so I think I want our listeners to know that it's okay to rebel against the idea of a traditional math classroom and that part of rebel rebelling means also taking risks and messing up and trying again and and doing that and getting, picking yourself back up and, and doing it over and over again. And so I hope that the stories that we tell and the reflections that we have on the podcast really inspire other educators to join the rebellion, if you will. For some reason, we get this in our head that we have to enter as the know-it-all and, and we should have it all together and we should be perfect from day one. And I also want to shatter that idea because it's not true. You are going to make mistakes 
every year. You're never going to have arrived either. There's always room to get better. And even I think as a coach, we feel like, like now as people step into coaching roles and the coaches that are out there, you now feel like, oh, now I really am supposed to be the expert. I'm supposed to know everything. And if I do like a demonstration lesson, it has to be absolutely perfect. And we have to let go of that. Even in the professional learning world, as people that come into schools, like it's never going to be perfect. And we have to be open and vulnerable to being like, what did you think of my, of my lesson? I want to keep learning too. Yeah. And I think if we portray that attitude as coaches to our teachers and as teachers to our students, that trickles down too. Yeah, for sure. Joining the rebellion also means building a community of other rebels around you. So that also makes me think about even my time now outside of the classroom. So I don't have my own classroom of students anymore, but I have now visited classrooms from all over the country and still look back, um, even though I had grown as a teacher during my teacher years, but I was, I just look back and think there's still so much more I could have been doing. And so it makes me think about if I were to go back into the classroom, how important it is to let other people in. And that's really scary. I think, um, I think as teachers, you know, we often work in these little silos and we close our doors to our classrooms and occasionally the teacher across the hall would be like, Jill, you're talking way too loud. (laughs) I was a loud talker in my classroom. I'm sure there's plenty of you out there too. But I, why, you know, why wasn't I more open to letting people inside my room um, is something that I wonder. And also visiting other teachers' classrooms. I worked at a small schools mostly, and I wish that I had visited like the history class more to see like, how are they doing things in a different way that I could even bring into my classroom or the English language arts classes. Um, Just being a little bit more open with our classrooms would have made a huge difference for me because now as someone who does professional learning and getting to see so many classrooms, that's what I would want more of. Yeah, that's so true. It's a shame that it took, you know, year four for me to finally see a different way. And I had tons of teachers around me. There was a science teacher across the hall for me most of my career. I only taught the one year at the high school and then I moved on to middle school, which I swore I would never do, but did anyway. And I fell in love with my eighth graders and never left eighth grade. But there was a science teacher across the hall for me who was amazing. She was very well known as this really amazing, awesome science teacher. And not once did I think I should go watch her. I might learn something. I keep thinking of myself like I, I wish that I was there to keep pushing myself off of the straight and narrow line that I kept thinking I needed to be on. Mm-hmm. I wish that someone was there every day being like, you went, you went back to it. You went back to, um, you know, your traditional mindset or whatever it was. Like I needed someone there to just keep nudging me. Um, and luckily, sometimes that was the students right? The students would often show me this isn't working. And so I wish I would have, maybe I wish I would have trusted that more. Mm -hmm. And someone would have been there to tell me, like, trust your students. They're showing you what they need. They're showing you what's working and what isn't working and use that 
to push yourself to either try new things or think outside the box um, and meet their needs. So did you have a critical colleague in your life? Did you have someone who coached you? It sounds like you, you didn't have that at all. Not really. I worked at two really small schools where um, both times where I started at each of those schools, the other teacher was also a new teacher. Um, so I didn't have like a mentor uh, math teacher, at least. I did have colleagues that I would talk to, and I did have um, a couple teachers back from high school. Mr. Indak, Mr. Christmas was another teacher that like I still stayed in touch with, and I think they helped me. But I didn't have someone there like day to day. Um, in those situations. And that makes me think about other teachers that are at small schools. Like yeah. I didn't even think about, I mean, Twitter wasn't around then or maybe wasn't widely used. So it didn't occur to me to like be connected to an outside world of educators outside of my school. Like I never even thought about that, but maybe that's that maybe, but maybe that would have been one of the most helpful things is to like be on the math Twitter blogosphere, to be on the long live math Facebook group and be like, I'm having this problem or I'm getting stuck with this thing. Um, who can who can help me? Who can keep me on track? Who can give me tips? Yeah, it was definitely easy to feel siloed even in my, I mean, I was the only eighth grade math teacher in the whole district where I taught. It was that small. So there was not even an, another eighth grade math teacher in the district. There was a seventh grade math teacher and a sixth grade math teacher. And we were it in middle school. Um, so I was very blessed when um, I had, I was asked to be involved in this grant, which was where I met Carnegie Learning as a teacher. I went and, and went through this, you know, math camp, if you will, professional learning. And then those facilitators um, came into my classroom and, and coached me as well. And that's really what really pushed me to it's, it's what ignited my rebellious spirit that was, it was deep down in there, but that's what I think got it going. So I'm super thankful for that. Um, it's but, cool that but there are plenty of teachers across the U.S. who don't have that opportunity and who, and I, I could have been one of them because I was in a really small school district. If it weren't for that grant, I would have never been involved in any of that. And th today, in today's day and age, there's no excuse really not to be connected somehow if you are in one of those small school districts, because there's so many little mini math education communities out there, just join one, find one. Um, Long Live Math is one of them. Go to longlivemath.com or go to our Facebook page. But you're right, the, the math Twitter blogosphere and there's, I mean, you could just Google it and find many people to follow on, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the places. Um, so you could kind of create your own community and learn from people that way. And it was, it was difficult back then when there was no, there was internet, but not the same as today. <laughs> we talk like we're really old. We do. We're not that old, Jill. <laughs> but, it, but when we didn't have Twitter back then, it does feel like it. Lessons learned and practical tips. There were lots of lessons that I learned early on, um, most of which centered around the things that just didn't go like I thought they should up front. So I'd try something and it wouldn't go exactly like I had planned. And as you could tell by my story about the rows and columns and measuring, um, measuring with the tiles, I'm, I'm a control freak a little bit. So when things, 
when you, you have to kind of let go of your control when you're trying to implement a classroom that's non-traditional where you let where you present students with high level tasks and you kind of step back and ask good questions and just sort of allow them to struggle a bit and so one of the frustrations I had early on was that my students weren't always talking about math in their groups. I mean, I had eighth graders. They were very social beings. They had no trouble talking to each other. They just had trouble talking about what I wanted them to talk about. And so I would I had them in these little groups of four and I would walk around to this group and get them going. And that group would be talking about who was dating who or who was going to the ball game this weekend or who tried out for cheerleader or, and it just was like, ugh. Why won't they talk about what I need them to talk about? Like, this is math class, quit with your side conversations. And so it got to the point where I felt like it was so out of control that we weren't, we weren't moving quickly enough through the content that I was just ready to quit. I remember looking at my, another one of my very critical colleagues at the time going, I can't do this. I'm going back to Rose and Collins because I don't have any control. They're not doing what I'm asking them to do. Like they don't know what they, they're not mature enough to do this. And I, and I remember her really pushing back on me and I went home that night because I knew she was coming back the next day to watch me and I couldn't not try it again. And so I just kept thinking like, how in the world am I going to get them to do what I want? And I remember thinking, well, if I could pay them, they would do what I want, right? Like if there's some way I could pay them, this would be amazing, but I don't have that kind of money. How am I going to pay them? Somehow this idea of paying them turned into um, sort of a reward system. But what I did was I went back to school the next day, I opened up my closet and um, inside of it were, um, there was a big old bag of those double-sided counters that you use to teach integers with. Um, and then I also had these little plastic cups. So I gave every group a plastic cup and I numbered them. And I put a big wad of those double-sided counters in my pockets. And I told the students, all right, so today, I'm going to give you a, um, a counter every time I see your group exhibiting a behavior that I want to see. And I had a big list of these, like you all are, are arguing about math or you, somebody read the question out loud to the whole group or somebody asked a good question or your group presented their thought process or your group found a mistake in someone else's thought process. Like there was this big list of these. So the whole, the whole class period, I'm, I'm just giving chips for all the things. You did the warm up when you got in the room, all the things. Um, and it's funny because I called them counters. It was the kids who started calling them chips because they, I guess to them they look like poker chips. But anyway, it completely changed my classroom dynamic. It was immediately like, so we kept a total for their, they had a team. We kept a, a chip total every day. We would add to their team total. Um, and then at the end of whatever unit, they, the team with the most chips got whatever, a ski and a candy bar, which we were allowed to feed them sugar back in the day. And if you don't know what a ski is, you should Google that later. It was a local like um, citrus kind of beverage with tons of caffeine in it. They thought it was the end all be all though. And that's all that mattered to me. Anyway, I've never heard of that. It completely changed my classroom. I, I never ever again, and it affected it in ways that I also didn't even realize it would. I never ever had to ask a kid to get a pencil out, get started on the warm up ever again, because when the first group did that and the other groups heard the chips fall into the cups, they would immediately be like, get your warm up. I mean, they would hold each other accountable because they wanted their points. And so I also made the decision early on to never take chips away from students. It was only a positive reinforcement and so there were certainly days where I turned a group's cup upside down and said, you're not getting anymore because I was done with them, but I never used it as a negative. And that also was huge for me. But 
it completely changed my frustrations around them not talking about what I wanted them to talk about. Um, and I, to this day, would swear by that method for anybody trying to begin collaborative groups. So, what about you? Were there any cool things that you tried early on that just were life changing in your in your first few years when you were trying to rebel? So this is interesting. This I have kind of a, a simple technique, but I learned it when I was in high school from that chemistry teacher, Mr. Inbeck. But I kept finding myself uh, slipping. And there's a story, a little story that I want to share that, I, that helps me remember. So I'm hoping it will also help other people remember. So first of all, when I was a student, and Casey, I imagine you were probably like this too, you looked to teachers' reactions to see if you were on the right track. Yes. Was that you? Mm-hmm, for sure. So that was me, right? I was a people pleaser, and I was like, am I saying this right? She looks happy. She's smiling at me. Oh, yeah, I think I'm on the right track. Or, like, if, if I saw any negativity on my teacher's face, I immediately was like, oh, never mind. Or if they ask mind, you I have a no question chance. about yeah, your work. Exactly, if they ask you a question. So when I was in high school, this chemistry teacher, when you would give an answer, and you could see that I was, like, waiting for the, you know, facial response or whatever, and this teacher would say, so do you think that's right? What do you think about that? Like straight poker face, no expression. And I, like, my stomach would churn being like, I have to decide if I'm right. Are you kidding me? Like all my life, the teacher told me if I was right or wrong. And there was a huge shift in me that, and that question stuck with me. Um, throughout my, I mean, throughout my life, right? Like of, I need to be the one to decide if I'm right or wrong when I'm sharing an answer or, or at least be ready to ask follow-up questions if I don't know. So when I'm, when I was in the classroom with my students, I would often be concerned about pacing and therefore would give away the answer Maybe not totally intentionally, but I would nod and be like, yep, you're right. Let's move on. Right. I would nod. I would smile. Or if I wanted to let them know, like, no, it's not right. We should move away from that. Like I might have some facial expression, whether it was intentional or not. Um, but I know that pacing fell into that because, right, like we got to keep moving. If this is right, like, let's just move on. Let's not talk about it, which is ridiculous. And so then we would come to an assessment. And my students would be missing tons of stuff that I was like, I know, like, you know, they, they answered this in class. So this brings me to the story of Clever Hans. Have you ever heard of Clever Hans? No. Who's Clever Hans? So Clever Hans was a horse in the early 1900s that was able to perform arithmetic and some other intellectual tasks, but like, able to perform some basic arithmetic, um, and I think multiplication too, and it was wildly impressive. Crowds would gather, and they would see this horse. Um, you know, you'd say two plus two, and then he'd like, you know, smack his hoof on the ground and, you know, stomp out four. And people were wildly impressed. 
So then after some time later, people were starting to be skeptical about this. And so there was a formal investigation by a psychologist who finally like uncovered the fact that the horse was totally responding to the reaction of the trainer, even when the trainer was doing it unknowingly. Like it didn't always have to be the same trainer, just a person in front asking this question was kind of giving off this vibe of like, yeah, you're right, or uh-uh, not quite, right? And so we do that as teachers unknowingly to kind of keep things moving. And so I keep going back to that question of the student needs to be the one to determine if they're right. The student needs to have that confidence because otherwise, when they get to the assessment, they're not gonna know if they're right or wrong. They're gonna just wait for the teacher to grade it to see if they were right or wrong. And they need to know for themselves. And so I, I just like that's something that became valuable to me as a teacher as I dug more into that and with more experience of just making sure the students that I'm asking the student that question. And they're also asking themselves, how do I know if I'm right? Right. I think uh, and you brought up a good point about it's really all about pacing and we get in this and we have this fear that we're just not going to get through all the content or we're not going to cover it all. And so we, a lot of times cut, cut folks short, or we think we don't have time to let students ask, how do I know I'm right? They just need to copy me 25 times. Right. So one of the other pieces of advice that I would give to newer folks, and I think this is something that I learned after year one, because I wouldn't have believed anyone if they told me the first year, I think I would have just been like, no way, Jose, but you're going to go slower before you go faster when you're shifting from traditional to student-centered. I like to make the analogy that when you teach traditionally, student learning is really kind of on this linear trajectory. So as time passes, students are pretty constantly moving up in their learning, right? Like it, you're, you're, if you graphed student learning traditionally, it would be, you know, we're going to learn two skills every week, whatever. So that's, there's a constant rate of change. But when you think about teaching in a student-centered way, learning is exponential. And if you know what an exponential graph looks like, it's very flat at first, right? Like it seems like you're not making any progress. And then all of a sudden you hit this curve, like in February and kids just shoot up because you've been working on these broader concepts. So it's like, you get frustrated. I remember getting frustrated early on that first year that I'm like, I felt behind in my pacing. Oh my gosh, it's already November and we haven't gotten to X, Y, or Z yet. Like whatever those things were. But once we hit February, they learned at such a faster rate because we were in such a groove and they already had a deeper understanding of the other things we learned, which made it a whole lot easier for them to make connections and learn faster the stuff towards the end of the school year. But I think I wish somebody had told me that, although I'm not sure I would have believed them. You've got, you kind of have to experience it. But what other pieces of advice, Jill, do you have for folks that are sort of just trying to get started and, and take risks and, and implement a non-traditional math classroom? It's it, this is easier said than done, but it's like, you know, kind of loosen up and, and shed that fear, right? Like you're. I don't know, somehow during the school year in the classroom, sometimes we get very narrow minded and we just see this very narrow pathway and just remembering that there are so many pathways to explore and so many different strategies to try out in your room and that 
it doesn't have to work perfectly every day. You might try something today and it fails and that's cool. Everyone's going to come back tomorrow and you're still going to keep moving forward and that it's not going to, you know, ruin lives and it's not going to, you know, completely mess up your entire classroom um, just to try some new things. I think too, there was a point where I made a conscious decision to not ignore the content standards. Obviously there were things I needed to, to make sure my kid, my students were exposed to in terms of content, but I made a point to prioritize the process standards like the SMPs, those habits of mind that students needed. It was more important for me to, with, for my students to leave me knowing how to um, persevere, knowing how to um, make connections across content, knowing how to be precise and have rich discourse and not give up and, and knowing how to create a pathway to approach a problem and all those things to think critically um, and be creative than it was for, for them to have memorized and regurgitated the quadratic formula at the end of the day, right? Like ultimately 90% of them were never going to use half the formulas I was teaching them. But the important part was they knew how to take a formula and figure out where it came from and know when to use it and how to use it. And that was more important than them being able to like regurgitate the formula. Yeah, I think kind of along those lines, just learning is messy. And some of us math teachers or uh, type A personalities might like, you know, really need this linear pathway that feels really comfortable, but learning doesn't happen on this straight and narrow pathway. Learning is, is messy and all over the place and goes back and forth. And like being accepting of that, I think also helps you be open to trying new things too. So let's reflect. Albert Einstein once said, a person who never made a mistake never learned anything new. Take a minute and let that one sink deep. A person who never made a mistake never learned anything new. It definitely uh, makes me think, you know, a little bit about my personality and maybe many listeners' personalities of not wanting to make mistakes. And I think when we are scared to make a mistake, it holds us back so much from trying new things and from often doing things that will benefit our students a tremendous amount. And that is definitely something I've constantly worked on shedding is my fear of making mistakes. I definitely think that this quote clearly outlines that making mistakes are part of trying th new things and taking risks that you can't you can't have tried something new or taken a risk and not make a mistake it's not going to be perfect when you try some, when you try something new or you take a risk it's just not and you have to be comfortable in your own skin and willing to it, you you kind of have to just know that all right, I'm taking a risk. I know this isn't going to be perfect, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then you know you're going to figure it out along the way. I think this podcast is a perfect example of that. I am certainly not a podcast expert. I have learned a lot about podcasts in the last several months, but as this is my first try, I'm trying something new. I'm taking a risk. Um, there are definitely mistakes I have made already along the way and will continue to make. 
but I hope that it's impactful for others in spite of that. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in joining our community of rebels, check us out at longlivemath.com.